Hi guys, today we have Dr. Michelle Finneran here and she is an author and a licensed professional counselor with her own practice. Welcome Michelle, thank you so much for being here. Thank you so much for having me, Kelly. I really appreciate it. Why don't you share with our viewers a little bit about yourself? So I've been in mental health for about 20 years, 10 of which have been in community mental health and about 11 to 12 have been in private practice. And I went to community health and I did psychology classes and internships and for my master's and my PhD program. And I um, started out in community mental health and then I branched out into my own and my own private practice. My private practice is located in Coral Springs, Florida called Beckham Associates. So I see preteens, teens, um, adults, uh, marriages, couples, families, but I also work with like organizations, municipalities, um, Broward Sheriff's Office. I work with um, some, some cities. My main sphere that I, I try to help are first responders, um, whether it be nurses, fire, firemen, or women, law enforcement, paramedics, doctors. I've always felt like I've had a, kind of a counselor's heart, even at a young age. Well, that makes sense. And with a heart like that, you can definitely help other people in this field. So let's go back a little bit. What was your personal mental health journey? It really stemmed from my childhood. My father had a very abusive childhood. He more or less talked at a very young age to me about his abuse and too young of an age to hear the abuse. So what I what I experienced was kind of secondary trauma through his eyes. And so he really didn't have anyone to talk about it with. So he really like leaned in on me about some of those things that he experienced. And at the time I didn't have the skill set or techniques to kind of help him through it. I was just more or less an empathetic listener. So it really started, I want to say like middle school age, that young. People seem to come to me in high school and in college. You know, they came to me. And in college, I would say is when I had started having my own identity crisis, my own mental health issues happening. And I began to realize that my, my mental health and people's mental health are really, really important. I really realized that my own mental health at times I felt was, was at jeopardy. And I learned that a lot when I was interning in crisis stabilization unit, and I would see really, really sick people, and I just was able to connect. I had so much compassion and love for these people that I really kind of understood where they were coming from. Yeah. And so during that time when you were younger, what was the climate like for mental health? Obviously now it's kind of at the forefront of our lives, but back then was there more stigma? Yeah, there was a lot. That, that's back in the 80s, 90s, um, a, lot, a lot of stigma. A lot of stigma. People did not talk about abuse in their homes. People did not talk about domestic abuse. People did not talk about family violence. It was kind of what is behind closed doors stays behind closed doors. Nothing was really talked about. And seeing the therapist back then or a doctor and you know taking medications was something that was very much looked down upon. And so I really feel like people are beginning to, to just start to see the importance of having really, really good mental health and how to take care of that. And destigmatizing what was once was. I think for so long that has been looked down upon and frowned upon. And now this is really coming to the forefront of just how really important it is. Was that what made you want to get into domestic violence prevention and really study abuse in general? Was it from hearing your dad's experiences as a child? No, actually it didn't. It didn't come from that at all. It came from when I was working at a local jail and I was working in an inmate in custody female unit um, for anger management, conflict resolution, and domestic violence. And then I was doing group therapy with these women. And what I began to realize is these women that were incarcerated were actually victims of domestic violence. And that blew me away. I wasn't expecting these incarcerated women to be actual victims. So I really, during, during that time, I was in my PhD program. And I really like pitched this idea to my committee chair, um, Dr. Judith McKay and my committee. Um, and I, I did preliminary research to see if there's any type of information 
or any type of research done on the supports that are helpful for these women that are victimized. And there was very, very little out there at that time. That's what I did my dissertation on. And that's what I wrote the book based on. Wow. That's amazing. The journey, how you went from conducting this research from an idea and actually brought it to life to now shed light on this topic. Particularly right now with the pandemic and what we've, what we've been seeing, there has been such a rise in it. And it's, it's super scary. And it's, it's very um, disheartening to see homes being really taken down by perpetration and by victimization. When you worked with the inmates, what was the core issue? What was the systematic issue that you discovered? When I conducted the, um, the research study, I actually interviewed survivors. So in the book, Surviving Domestic Abuse, is actually like survivors' accounts. They're actually like quotes in there directly from the survivor. I tape recorded them. I transcribed everything. And they're actual quotes directly from the survivor. And what I really feel is there, there's areas in the system that are extremely flawed. For instance, law enforcement. Law enforcement is not really equipped to deal with victims. They're, they're specialized in dealing with criminals. And you can't treat a victim like a criminal. And a lot of times these survivors were, would tell me how they felt very much so re-victimized by when law enforcement came onto the scene. Uh, no empathy, no type of um, sensitivity training, just not really understanding the victim and perpetrator relationship. And it is a relationship and dynamic that a lot of service providers do not understand. And if you don't understand it, you ask questions like, why don't you just leave? You ask questions um, like, you know, why don't you just pack up and get out? It's a loaded question. It's really not a fair question to ask a victim who's struggling in this because there's so many moving parts to that question to be answered, you know? And so I think when people stop asking that question and start asking different sets of questions that are more helpful and more effective, like what are some of the barriers to seeking help? The book is divided into three sections. The first section is that, you know, seeking help. What are the barriers to seeking help? What, what prevents a victim from reaching out to formal and informal supports? And then I dissect formal supports like law enforcement, mental health counselors, medical and nurses, um, clergy, judicial system. And then I look at informal support, such as family, friends, um, coworkers, and supervisors. And there's a lot of stuff that kind of popped up in the research that I was very shocked about, very shocked about. When a police officer, when they arrive on the scene and there's a victim, they're supposed to ask these questions, right? And then how can they support them? A lot of times victims tend to backtrack and protect their abuser in that situation. So how can they actually get the truth from someone who's being manipulated? One of the things that needs to happen first and foremost is when a law enforcement comes upon the scene, it should be standard that a female and a male officer come onto the domestic violence scene. But women who are victims feel closer with the gender of being female. They need that nurture so they, they respond better to female law enforcement officers. Separate the perpetrator from the victim when you're investigating and dissecting each story. They cannot be in earshot at each other. Because obviously the victim is not going to filter out anything honest or transparent. So we really need to like take a, take a moment, take the, take the victim outside, take the victim inside, take, keep them separated when you're doing your investigation. Language, tone, a lot of survivors found that when law enforcement officers came to the scene and they offered other support, because usually if law enforcement is the first plan of attack, and they gave like a booklet or a handout of where they can get the help needed for this, that resources, very helpful, very, very helpful for the victim going through that. It's funny how one small thing, like just giving someone an information packet could make all the difference and then give that victim the control back in the situation to then have a resource that they can take advantage of. 
Absolutely. Absolutely. And then what I, what I found that victims or survivors at the time did is they did their own type of research. Like they feel they were feeling something was wrong. They felt something was wrong. They just didn't really know exactly what was happening with them. So they would do their own preliminary research, Google, and look on these um, resources that were given to them. Right. And even friends and family could do that too, right? Giving information and resources. Absolutely. What I, what I found is friends are usually the ones who told their friend that was a victim, I feel like this is out the scope of my help that I can give you. And they actually referred them to a therapist, which was very helpful for the survivor who was speaking to me saying that their friends were very supportive. They didn't ghost them. They added an added resource to their network of people to talk to, which was fantastic for friends who are dealing with friends that are victims. There was no opinion in that. It was just like, I'm not a professional. Here's one who can help you. Instead of a lot of times people will take the control from the victim by saying, you have to leave, you have to leave right now. What do you suggest if the victim's not ready? And what do most people do wrong in the situation? What therapists, what therapists do wrong is when a victim comes in to discuss their abuse, you, they have to process the abuse. It's probably the first time that they're able to process the abuse. So for a therapist not to allow that time for the victim to process their traumatization and their abuse and actually hear themselves speak is damaging, is very, very damaging. The therapist needs to allow that time for the victim slash client to process their story. And when it's done, they still might not be in the right frame of mind to leave. The therapist has to meet the client where they're at. The therapist should not have their own kind of set agenda of what they want that the, their client to do. You could be suggestive, but if the client's not ready, the therapist should know that based on the session, based on the interaction. And so if a client's not ready, you process them more until the client is able and willing to feel have the strength to eventually get to where they need to be. And sometimes it takes a while. It takes awareness. It's bringing this stuff to light that is so pushed down and in denial. That's one thing that the therapists can do that are really, that can provoke really like more insight and more recognition into what is really happening and empathetically challenging their belief systems, the victim's belief systems in an empathetic way. You don't want to be confrontational. You don't want to come off as judgy as a therapist, but you also want to maybe say question, maybe their line of thinking or have them elaborate a little bit more on how they're feeling and thinking about certain certain subtopics. What about friends and family who aren't mm-hmm. professionals who are worried for the safety of someone that they love? Typically what happens is friends and family members that see their daughter getting abused just get super angry and protective and begin bashing the perpetrator. This is actually not helpful for the victim slash daughter. This is actually very damaging to them to hear their parents bash their perpetrator because it's just like a reinforcement that I, I screwed up, I made a wrong decision. So bashing the abuser is not helpful. Kind of really talking about where they're doing to keep safe, you know, trying to be non-judgmental, maybe not as emotional, and try to, try to have a logical, rational conversation about their safety and, and, and maybe even their concerns as parents and family members. It's very easy to get thrown into an emotional bashing um, of the perpetrator, but it's just not helpful. A lot of people, they're like, why don't you leave? And there are tons of reasons. What are some of the reasons with the victims that you met with, why they didn't leave? One of the, there's a couple, there's two sub reasons. One is financial and two is childcare. The biggest proponent that I found was something called the Stockholm syndrome that was developed between the perpetrator and the victim. And the Stockholm syndrome was coined in Stockholm, Sweden, where it was a hostage 
and a hostie type of dynamic where there were bank, three bank robbers that captured five, I believe five or six individuals. And what happened is there became a traumatic bonding between the hostie and the hostage. I parallel that Stockholm syndrome that really is what's taking place with victims and their perpetrators. There's, there's an emotional traumatic bonding that's happening between them that makes it so hard emotionally to not leave or to not, to not get up and go. And there's feelings of feeling sorry, feelings like I have to take care of because they're sick. That one survivor in the book described that if he had cancer, I would caretake for him. He has an illness. He has an illness. I need to be caretaking for him. That was the mentality that the victim had as to why she stayed for so long. And what ends up happening to the point where it becomes a dangerous situation to the point of violence and almost death looking you in the eye is when you realize that you have to get to that point to say, okay, it's either I'm going to die or this is, this is, this is, it needs, something needs to happen here. And so they choose, they make a choice to choose their own life and get the help that they need because it reaches such a detrimental point, a high risk, high violent point that they have no other way but to change it up and seek some help. Does it have to get to that absolute rock bottom point for them to make that realization or? It doesn't have to, it doesn't have to, but you know, domestic violence is kind of a gradual kind of sneaks up on you. Your partner just doesn't wake up and punch you in the face. That doesn't happen. There's usually small red flags, gradual building block that happens that you don't even realize. It's almost like putting the frog in the hot water and, you know, turning up the temperature a little bit on the frog um, and not realizing that in the, you know, in the midst of turning up the heat, the frog is surviving in boiling hot water. So it's kind of like that mentality. It's almost like you're putting the victim in a situation that at first everything's cool and it's the honeymoon phase and there's a great, great relationship. And then over time, um, the perpetrator over time does the manipulation, the narcissism, the abusing, and it becomes, it gets to a, it, it typically gets to a point where it's like a point of no return. Do you think that if there's more education and awareness about what those red flags are, that we could prevent this kind of violence at an earlier stage? I do. I do. I think it's very difficult to, when you're in a relationship, you know, because when you're in a, a messed up or unhealthy relationship and you get out of the relationship, you often tell yourself as women, why the hell was I even with him? You know, you know, it's like the afterthought, you know, this cannot be an afterthought. This has to be an in thought, in the moment, in the here and now type of thinking. If you're starting to feel uncomfortable, if you're starting to see red flags, don't tread lightly, really dig in. You're feeling something. Let's identify what that is. Can people work it out? If someone is an abuser and someone's a victim, is there any way that that abuser can stop or can change? Um, I typically don't advise victims and perpetrators to do couples counseling because it's just never a good idea to put someone who has power and control in a therapy session with someone who is victimized. So there are there is help for perpetrators. The problem with helping perpetrators is the perpetrator needs to know that they're the presenting issue here, that they're, they're, they're the huge part of the problem. And there's specific types of, not all perpetrators are like this, but there's certain characteristic traits the perpetrators have, um, you know, narcissism, personality disorders that cannot be treated like a, a, a regular diagnosis. Medications don't work for personality disorders. It, it's really a behavioral modification program. And there's like batter's intervention programs I just don't know how successful they are and how successful uh, in terms of statistical results are from those programs. Yeah, that's very interesting. I mean, anyone should just be protecting the victims at this point. 
in that situation, but I was just curious. Um, and so in your research, you mentioned it's helpful to have friends and family give information and resources. What about actual support or for someone, you mentioned childcare, what helps people escape? What's the plan of action if someone is ready to leave? But when a person is ready to leave, they have to have a safety plan because the point of separation is the most dangerous, volatile moment for the victim. That's when, you know, the perpetrator will try to gain access, will be more forceful, will not let up when there is a divide between victim and perpetrator. So with a therapist, what they can do is develop a healthy, secured safety plan, a safe place to live. Um, if, they, if there's legal action, actually, you know, the court, a court order or a non, uh, a, rest, a restraining order without given, without disclosing the address of the victim. That, that's a systematic flaw. And so I think that things can be done, changed judicially, system-wise, that we can develop a core safety plan when the, when the victim is emotionally ready to step out. There's, there's um, in the state of Florida, there's, a, a, there's county, wide shelters and programs in Fort Lauderdale, Florida, where I'm living, there's a there's a, a, a shelter called Women in Distress, and they have complete wraparound services, childcare, shelter, programs, classes, education, job finding, wraparound services, and that's what I would definitely recommend. When you leave your house, you need a safe place to rest your head for you and your children. There, need, there has to be some type of transportation. There has to be some type of job. There has to be an income coming in. And these service providers at these, this, these wraparound services provide that type of help and it's very, very necessary and helpful to, to attain that. Some people, some, some victims don't really need a, a place to stay because they have a friend or a family and they don't disclose any of that. So it just really depends. And there's no, there's really no cookie cutter way to give out the help because everyone is so individualized. Well, yeah. I'm glad that there's shelters like that. I wonder what yeah. we have in my local area with the systematic work that you do with police officers, what do they do if they suspect something, but the victim says, no, everything's fine. Is there really anything that service providers can do if the victim themselves won't come, won't come forward or if there's no evidence? So where can uh, law enforcement intervene? What, what ends up happening is usually the victim, they call because they want, to, they want protection from their abuser, but they get so scared that there are times and cases where the victim will actually attack a law enforcement officer for arresting the perpetrator because she's so fearful of retaliatory uh, movements happening when the perpetrator gets out. Uh, I think like having the perpetrator in there a little bit longer in jail in custody a little bit longer. So a plan can be made for the victim and some safety can be established. I think, um, you know, obviously uh, for the law enforcement officer to make an arrest, they have to see tangible evidence. So it at that point, there if she if he or she the law enforcement officers is seeing marks or seeing scratches or blood or weapons, then they have a, a right to arrest when there's tangible evidence. What happens is, you know, uh, they can't make arrest when it's an emotional or verbal abuse, and that's that that the um, what happens is law enforcement get extremely frustrated because they're coming to the same house, and it may not have escalated to the point of physical abuse, but when it does, that's when law enforcement usually steps in. That's awful that if someone is being verbally abused, that there's not really help for them until they're ready to leave. Yeah, right. So your book also talks about the social cost of domestic violence. And what is that social cost? So the social cost is just that we are, uh, it, it's just been a lot of money to incarcerate and, and, and incarcerate a woman who's not a criminal, who's a victim. So that's that's a cost. That's a cost for people in, in the system. Um, cost of like, 
having the cycle just repeat itself. Oftentimes, I, you know, when I worked in the, when I worked in the jail, I would see the same people in and out uh, of the system. And just, it was just really hard once you're in the system to stay out of the system. And so um, that, that's, that costs a lot of governmental money, money coming from other people's pockets. Forget, forget like financial, the emotional costs that it takes, it just affects so many people when there's a domestic abuse relationship, it affects the family, it affects the children, it affects both sides of families, it affects the providers. There is just a trickle effect of sourcing out from the abusive act or the abusive relationship that impacts pretty much everyone in so many different ways. It's almost like when you have a wind chime and you take one of the wind chimes and you pull it back and you push it in and all the wind chimes now kind of get disrupted. That's what it's like when there is a domestic violence abuse in a household, especially particularly if there's children there. All those children are in, are in chaos now and in crisis now. Those wind chimes are all over the place because the stabling force act, acted against each other in a physical and a physical and emotional way. Even emotional fighting in front of children is toxic and, and abusive and you know being exposed to that brings anybody, any child in fear and anxiety ridden and nervousness because they're, you don't know what's gonna happen. It's such a impulsive thing when parents argue in front of their children or when parent, uh, children are exposed to this type of relationship. What are the lasting effects on children of witnessing abuse? Uh, a lot of times what happens is children that witness this abuse, just re they repeat the cycle of abuse. They become repetitive inter intergenerational violence, pattern violence of cycle of violence. And that's something that you know the, um, daughters learn to see their mothers getting abused. They basically see that same sex gender being victimized. And then um, sons see their fathers striking out against their supposedly loved one. And they, if they do not make a conscious choice to change that dysfunctional dynamic in their adulthood as a child, then they'll just repeat the cycle. And that's why this continues to go on it's for just, generations. It just, it just, it, absolutely. I, I like to think that each generation gets a little bit educated, smarter, you know, but back at, back in my parents' days, these things were not talked about. Now, people that have, are adults that have been abused are just now starting to talk about their abuse. And these are 40-year-old, 50-year-old people coming into wow. my office for the first time talking about their abuse because they weren't able when they were witnessing the abuse or being abused themselves. Is there a certain culture that is causing this? Is it toxic masculinity? Is it the media? Like what is allowing this manipulation to happen at such a large scale. Back then there were such set gender roles. Back when I was growing up in households, mom typically didn't work. They stayed home, took care of the kids, made dinner, and dad was the breadwinner. Now, because women rights movements have shifted that a little bit, and now women have much more rights in this culture, in this society, now both parents are working. It's equalizing that imbalance. Yes, a woman can mow the lawn. Yes, a father can change the diaper. It's changing up what has been stereotypically women's roles versus men's roles and making it a team kind of effort for everybody to engage in, not, not, not gender roles. The, the whole point to try to have egalitarian relationship is you're, you try to have equal equal power. And you're not always going to be equal at all times. Sometimes it can be 80-20, sometimes it can be 40-60. When there's a huge influx of power and that power is sustained for long periods of time, then it becomes super controlling, super manipulative, and super aggressive. The victim has absolutely no say, no regard for her feelings or her emotions. And that imbalance of power and that control just takes a big shift. Generations now and future generations are equalizing the power. They're trying to diffuse gender rule. That's amazing. That's happening. 
Yeah, it's definitely getting better. And yes. there's also more activism happening too to support victims and set up shelters and stuff like that. So it's definitely a better climate than it was before. There's definitely a lot of nonprofit work having been done in this field, in this area that I think people, if they just research a little bit, they can find resources they've tapped into. Yeah, definitely. Once they're ready, there's a lot that is out there. Yeah. And so Absolutely. how have you taken all that you learned from doing the research and putting together your book? How does that apply to your day-to-day -day work in your private practice? So when I, especially when I work with couples and relationships, it really falls into place. Um, trying to have a egalitarian, harmonious relationship. I work with women who have had past abuse, whether it be child abuse or, um, you know, a traumatization of some sort and try to help them therapeutically with techniques to um, de-traumatize them to uh, um, understand that you don't have to take on the learned helplessness or the learned victimization that you can change that in order to feel empowered. And I use something called the empowerment model. And I talk about in my book that I use it often therapeutically to boost anyone who may have not a self, not a good self-image, not a good self-efficacy, not a good self-value, not, not enough self-love. I use that empowerment model that to, to make women and men who have that for them feeling like that and make them understand that you have to be, you have to look you in the eye every single day. And regardless of what you look at like, you have to like it. There, we're people of flux, so we're constantly changing. How I was last year is not how I am this year. We're constantly moving, we're constantly evolving. With transition, you have to be 100% accepting of self. You know, are we per perfect people? No, we're not striving for that. That's unrealistic. But we wanna be the best version of ourselves each and every day. It's just building on that. It's trying to set like, where are you now? And how can we get here? How can we get up to here? What's a baby step that we can take just to build a little bit, a little bit more from where we were? And I use a lot of empowerment. I use a lot of self-love and that relationship with self is so very important. How can we prevent through that self-love? Can we prevent getting into an abusive relationship? Is it dependent on being in a strong state of mind when you get into a relationship? It's, it's knowing maybe that what you were exposed to in your upbringing may have not been the healthiest. Um, what, I've, what I've also discovered in um, interviewing survivors is the mother-daughter relationship is vital in, in terms of that bond, that emotional bond between mother and daughter is vital into if a, if a victim seeks out um, intimate partner violence, relationships that are perpetrated in, in nature. Um, a lot of this, many, all, almost all the survivors I interviewed had a disrupted, unattached, emotionally attached, detached relationship with their mothers. Wow. And so they're kind yeah. of craving that in a partner. Yes. That acceptance, wow. that, that bond. And what happens is there is a bond with the intimate partner, but it becomes a traumatic bond. And that's part of the Stockholm that you talked about. Yes. So they're, they're literally psychologically conditioned to stay. Yes. 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 That's something a lot of people need to understand more because that's the first thing people ask is why didn't you leave or well you know you knew it was bad but how couldn't you walk away and it's like this person is literally being psychologically rewired and brainwashed yes, yes. absolutely and emotionally emotionally staples them there like that's why i mean to ask somebody that you have for providers to not get that does the victim as such a disservice and by asking different types of questions can actually empower the victim to maybe think a little bit differently, you know, because, you know, it's, it's very disheartening if you're a victim and you get asked, why don't you just leave? Well, if it was that simple, I would, but I'm not, so I'm here. So, you know, it's just very, it's, it's, it's 
re-victimization is what happens when that question is asked. Yeah, it just traumatizes the person that much further where they probably cling to what's more comfortable. Right. Even though, even though things are dysfunctional as they may be and, and toxic and unhealthy, we are creatures of habit. So we gravitate to the familiar. We gravitate to commonality. That's what we feel comfortable with, even though it may be unhealthy because we know it so well and because it's patternistic and familiar, we, we do it. It may be super maladaptive, but because we're familiar with it, that's our go-to. Yeah. And we need to just let victims kind of see it play out as much as we want to protect them and we can offer them resources, but ultimately just supporting them until they're ready and then helping them when they yes. are ready. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. And helping, helping families and help them, you know, hopefully this book is not just for victims and survivors, but it's also for help, how to help the service providers serve this population, how to help family and friends talk to yeah. their loved ones who are in victimization. Absolutely. So if someone is listening to this and they are hearing that they might be in a toxic or an abusive relationship, what would be your advice for them? My, my advice to them is to really what, what a lot of the, the survivors I interviewed that they, they knew that there, there might something about this going on. So they, they did their own preliminary research. They researched things that they were feeling. They researched, tried to pick some of the things that they were feeling character-wise, red flags that they were seeing, and really started doing their own type of internet and bibliography re, um, therapy on, the, on themselves. And then they get, they get information and they can actually identify some of the things that may correlate. And a lot of, a lot of the survivors that I interviewed join domestic violence groups and would listen to the stories of domestic violence. They wouldn't necessarily participate, but they would hear stories and say, oh my God, you know, that sounds right on spot. Like that's so familiar as to what has happened to me and how that made me feel. I mean, the stories are very different, but the takeaway feeling, it's really the same for a lot of these women. And so when they would hear these in the support groups, they would stay silent, but they'd be actively listening. They would be able to identify and educate themselves. So if, if you don't feel comfortable reaching out, because that's a hard, that's a brave and courageous step that it needs a building up to, to do that, research it, look into it, figure it out, join a support group. You don't have to participate in it, but listen to the other stories and see if you can relate, see if you can identify. Yeah, that's a really great first step. And I'm sure through peer support, it just normalizes it instead of all of your friends and family who see your relationship as abnormal. And then to have other people who are caught in the same thing, it, it must just make victims feel a lot better. Yes. Yes. Especially if it's not, if it's, they're, they're strangers, people are strangers. They don't know them from Adam and they're hearing such similarities that they, it's mind blowing to them. It really like wakes it. That is probably the best and first step because what it does, it brings that awareness up. Right. And probably part of their psyche is their perpetrator is convincing them that they're one of a kind, that no one is like them in a negative way. So then right. for them to realize that actually it's not that something's wrong with me, this is just a power imbalance that happens. Yes, yes, yes. And what the perpetrator tends to uh, um, do inherently is keep them away from people of positions of people of empowerment, like friends or family that may be uh, more of a feminist approach. They, the, the, the perpetrator really identifies those friends and really like makes active efforts to dislike them and get the victim to dislike them too and be, to befriend them. Wow. And that's how they get control because those people are the biggest threat to yes. their power. Exactly. Wow. 
I learned a lot today and I'm sure our listeners definitely did too. Where can people find you, Michelle? And let's plug your full book name. It is Surviving Domestic Abuse, Formal and Informal Supports. It's on Amazon. Um, it's a great book, whether you're studying or if you just want to learn more or help people around you. Uh, where can people find you, Michelle? So my website is um, um, www.drmichellefinneran.com. And it's, it's, you just type in, you can Google Dr. Michelle Finneran and my website will come up. And I have all types of educational um, podcasts on there that I've done. I, I put on there as well. I put, I have a blog section, section that people can do their own research. We do a lot of blogs on domestic relationships and domestic violence, and it's very educational. Uh, I, have a, I have a place where uh, people can reach out to me um, to contact me in terms of they want to collaborate with me or they want to discuss something with me. Therapeutically, I can only treat their uh, clients in the state of Florida because I have a state of Florida license in Tallahassee, but I can consult with organizations. I, I, I have been consulting with organizations. I can lab with different businesses to help businesses help their, um, their employees or their, um, their, their population. Awesome. Definitely check her out. Thank you again, Michelle. For Thank being you here. so much. I really appreciate it, Kelly. Thank you so much for having me.